Everybody hear me? Hello. I'm on. Ah, wonderful. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's great to be here with you this morning. Um, yeah, so I'm the, the children and family pastor here, and I'm the new guy. Uh, so expect some object lessons and flannel graph this morning. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, we're... Um, we're going to be getting into our uh, series here on Hosea. Uh, before we do that, though, Pastor Matt is away. He's in Calgary, and uh, he asked me to share. Yeah. Is that like Yahoo that he's gone or Yahoo? <laughs> that could be taken a few different ways. <laughs> so he's in Calgary, and uh, he just encouraged me to um, share a few words with you just about our kids' ministry and kind of where we're going with that and uh, how you can be just praying for that and um, maybe even uh, getting involved. So um, I want to share with you one of my favorite conversations uh, in the Bible is this conversation that happens between uh, Jesus' disciple Peter and Jesus um, when they had this little breakfast together. It was right after Jesus had been resurrected and Jesus appeared to his disciples and did a miracle with fish. And, and then Peter and Jesus were having breakfast with that same fish um, by the fireside. And, and Jesus, of course, Peter, you know, he, he denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus gives Peter this opportunity to kind of make up for that. And he leans over to Peter and he asks him a question three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter three times affirms his love for Christ. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And then Jesus gives Peter this command. He says, three times he says, feed my lambs, Peter. And then he says, tend my sheep, Peter. And then he says, feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my lambs. What is a lamb? That's a young sheep, right? Do you think that could refer to those who are young in faith? I think that's exactly what he was saying to Peter. Feed the young. Feed the children. The actual children and the children in faith. Even adults who are new. And then a few chapters later we get into the book of Acts and this same Peter, uh, he gets up and he gives this sermon when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and there's this miracle of these languages being spoken and people are going, what's going on? And Peter gets up and he says, he tells them about Jesus and he tells them that Jesus died on the cross for them and, 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 and Jesus is the son of David, he's the son of God and, and, he was, and God raised him from the dead. And then at the end of his sermon he says, repent, turn from your sins. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise, this promise of forgiveness of sins, of the gift of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children. The gospel message isn't just for us adults in the room. Um, it's for our children. It's for our children. It's, and it's for those who are far off. Um, so this morning, I just wanted to share a little of my heart. You know, we, um, we are gearing up this fall for... Uh, what we hope is, is an even more impacting year for our kids' ministry. We really want to have stronger relationships that kids can have with each other and with 
adults like you who can help lead them into a deeper relationship with Christ. And so my prayer is that God is calling, God knows the needs that we have, and that God's going to call maybe some of you even in this room um, to come and serve with us this year and to build and to share the gospel with the next generation. Um, because the gospel is for them. The gospel is for them. And, you know, we, we, we care a lot about the things that happen in our adult services. You know, we probably all in this room have opinions and preferences and things that we care about that happen here. You know, we care that, you know, the teaching is good or the preaching is good and the worship is, you know, the style is, you know, maybe to our needs or whatever. And we care that this time is focused and it meets the needs of people. And my prayer is that we would care just as much about how our kids' ministry is meeting the needs of the kids. But as you guys know, kids take a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, they, they take a lot of work, and they take a lot of dedicated, committed people to build into their lives. And so we're looking for teenagers, for adults this year, who really want to commit. And you know, you don't have to know everything. Just a love for Christ and a love for kids. And uh, we will help equip you you know, to, to do it well. So um, can you just join me in praying? Even if God's not calling you, just, just I want to put this before you as a prayer request. You just pray that, that our kids would, would have an impacting year and that Christ would really be near to them uh, as we teach them this year. So let's, let's just pray for that um, before we get going. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for every child in our, our congregation. God, thank you for all the prayers of that you answered, Lord, for, for kids in our church. And um, Lord, I, I thank you that you give us an opportunity to serve you by serving um, the young and um, building into their lives. And Father, it is such a joy. It's so fun and such a, a marvelous, uh, just adventure working with kids. And I uh, thank you for what they teach us, Lord. Um, so I pray, Father, you would call, that you would move in people's hearts this year to get involved and to serve uh, you by serving and welcoming the kids of our church, uh, that we might share your gospel with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sorry, that was like a sermon announcement, a sermonment. I don't know what you'd call that, but sermonment. Uh, you can turn to the book of Hosea. Hosea, we're going to be in Hosea today, uh, chapter 9, and we're going to be picking it up right in the middle of chapter 9, verse 10. Um, I have an admission. That I'd like to share with you. Um, I have never understood art. I don't mean like the guy. I mean like paintings and stuff, you know, portraits. I've never really, you know, got it. Like, you know, I, uh, my wife, uh, you know, she, she liked this movie growing up, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and there's like a scene in there where they go to this museum, and uh, she's like, man, I always want to go to a museum like that. So, you know, uh, we got a chance. My wife and I, we traveled to Europe, and we got to go to Paris, and we went to one of the best museums out there, which is the Louvre. Yeah, amazing um, place, and it was stunning. I mean, it was just like the the world's history all there in art, and um, we got a chance to see so many cool paintings and stuff, but I I just have to admit, like, I didn't get it. Like, I, like I got it. Like, I got that it was amazing, but I I didn't understand exactly why i didn't know why like the mona lisa was encased in like you know eight inches of glass and there was like a mission impossible security system around her like i was like yeah like it's good but like really like all of it like i just i just didn't understand 
Um, but as I've kind of grown up and started to, uh, you know, grown up, I guess, uh, I, I've come to realize that art is, um, art, really good artists are, are communicating something in their, in their artistry. They're, they're trying to communicate, they're, they're communicating something very intentional. Um, you know, art is communication. And the artist is trying to tell you a truth, a worldview, a perspective. They're trying to get you to see something. And um, the good artists do it very well. Art is a portrayal of something. It's a way of communicating. Pictures help us understand things better. And um, God is an artist. And God loves to give us pictures, portrayals, portraits of things to help us understand um, ourselves better and him better. In our uh, text in Hosea this morning, we're going to look at two portraits uh, that God gives his people Israel to help them understand a bit of what he's like and what, mostly what they're like. Um, so we're going uh, to look at a couple of portraits today. We're going to start with um, a first portrait and look at, look at an observation we're going to make about um, idolatry. And then we're going to look at the, the next portrait in chapter 10 and look at two more observations about idolatry. So that's where we're going. Um, before we do that, let me just give you a little background of what's going on just historically with this book. Um, Hosea, of course, is a prophet, okay? So that means he gets messages from God, and then he gives those messages to the people. And those messages had to be true. Otherwise, he'd be called a false prophet. So he had to be a, a, a true prophet, and, and that was Hosea. And, and God had asked him... Um, you know, to marry this wife who was promiscuous and, and slept around on him, and he was called to love her as a picture of God's love for his idolatrous people. So Hosea lived during a time in Israel's history that was very divided. He, we think that he lived around 760 to 710 B.C. This is a real guy. Hosea lived, and uh, during his lifetime there were these two kingdoms. Uh, it was supposed to be a united kingdom, but they had been split Hundreds of years before, uh, King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had made some foolish choices and the kingdom was torn in two. The top ten tribes, uh, kind of like provinces, they were um, of the kingdom of Israel. They became known as Israel. So sometimes Israel refers to the whole nation. Sometimes it just refers to this northern kingdom of these ten tribes. And then the southern kingdom was made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They became known as the kingdom of Judah. Now in that southern kingdom... Uh, their capital city was there, Jerusalem. And the kings that sat on the throne there were of the line of David. So they were of David's line. The promise of the covenant was with them. And some of those kings were really great kings, and some others were pretty terrible. But up in the north, almost all of them were bad. <laughs> I mean, they were just nothing but bad kings. Their very first king was a guy named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's, one of his first moves that he did was he set up these two centers of worship uh, up in the, the town of Dan, a little higher up, and, and then in the town of Bethel. And he set up, um, because he was influenced by his time in Egypt, he set up these golden calves and said, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So he changed the history books. And he called them to worship these calves, which was what Egypt, what they did in Egypt. And so Jeroboam brought them into idolatry right off the bat. 
In one of those locations, Bethel, Bethel was a city um, that meant house of God. But here we're going to see in Hosea refers to it as Beth-Avon, which means house of wickedness. That's Hosea's take on Bethel. It's no longer a house of God, it's a house of wickedness because of these, these false gods. But you know, it wasn't the only gods they worshipped. Over time, the nation of Israel also gave themselves to lots of other gods. And their very favorite god was the god Baal. It was a storm god. It was the local Canaanite god. And they would pray to this god to send the rains and give them fertility for their crops and all kinds of things. They would sacrifice their children to this god. They would do all kinds of, uh, you know, the more they worshipped this god, the more they just kind of went down the tube. And what did God think of all this? Well, he didn't stay silent. He sent prophets. He sent messengers. He sent words to them to tell them exactly what he thought about what they were doing, specifics. And he warned them of the consequences if they continued. And he was patient with them. And they continued to just be idolatrous. So Isaiah, so in our text this morning, Hosea is going to come in right near the tail end of the northern kingdom of Israel when they had just, their, their last king, Jeroboam II, who, who brought a lot of prosperity to the land, he's been dead. And now there's a 20-year period where there's six different kings who all keep getting assassinated because the people of Israel can't even keep a king on the throne anymore. And so that's where we are. Right in that period is where we get our text, these two portraits this morning. So let's look at portrait number one. It starts in chapter 9, verse 10. And uh, I'm going to read it for us. So here we go. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. And Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. I uh, thanked Pastor Matt for giving me a nice rosy text to (laughs) give you this morning as your new children's pastor. Wow, so yeah, there's, there's a lot to consider in this, uh, this text. Um, I'm going to get to some of that harsh judgment stuff, explain a little bit of that a little bit later. But what I want to mostly focus on is the portrait that God gives of Israel here. 
and um, make, make an observation about their idolatry. Um, this portrait he gives is grapes in a wilderness. Grapes in a wilderness. That This is a picture of God's delight in Israel. Like grapes in a wilderness. This beautiful thing in this dry and desolate place. God found them when he, when he first joined in a relationship and covenanted with this group of people, Israel. He delighted in them. He, they were his delight. Um, that's what this is a picture of. So it's a good picture. It's a, it's a, it's a great picture even. I remember years ago, uh, our grade 12 class, our, our, our PE teacher, he gave us his choice at the beginning of the year. He said, hey, you can do PE all year or you can go on the West Coast Trail for seven days and just do that, and that's your PE credit. And the West Coast Trail is on the southwestern end of Vancouver Island. It's a 75K seven-day hike, um, and it's, it's fairly daunting. Um, you're out there camping out and, and on the beach and, and going through mud and hiking up and down. And so it's 70K, 75K, but it's not 75, you know, straight K. It's, it's you know, up and down and it's a little arduous, and we were game. We were all up for this, and so we found 16 people, and we had this, this team that went, and May 5th, 2000, that was the year we left. I remember the day well. It was a Sunday afternoon, and we started off in legendary fashion. My, my partner, uh, we had partners that we shared certain supplies. He, uh, his backpack, he was the most prepared person in the whole trip. They lost his backpack out the back of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> And we never found it again. Um, and so, we, you know, we managed to find a few things and we gave him a few of our rations and we lost a day of hiking. So we had to make that up. And so the first few days we, we did pretty good. You know, we enjoyed our trail mix and our dried fruit and, you know, the kinds of things you have to pack for this. And well, by about day four, we hit 20K that day and we were all starting to get a little low. And I remember vividly the conversations of our whole team centered around one thing, food. (laughs) Oh, what are you going to have when you get back? Oh, pizza sounds really good. And we were just dreaming and just drooling over like what we were going to eat. And then this surprise happened. Near the end of the trail, there's this lady who lives along the trail and she makes breakfast for hungry hikers. And she charges a fortune. <laughs> and so, so some of our some of our group didn't buy it, but some of our group they were like, "Yeah, I'll pay it. Let's just eat this food." So, and I would say, hands down, it was the best breakfast some of our our team had ever had. Like it was just amazing because there's something about when you're in a desolate place and you're just you're hungry that. This food that's surprising comes along and it's, it's a delight. And that's what God is saying about his people is, you're my delight. Like, you're my joy. Like, you're the grapes in the wilderness. The people that, you're the, you're the delicious food at the end of the West Coast Trail. He delights in his people. In Psalm eighteen nineteen, David exclaims that, he says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God delights in his children. He delights. And it's because of that delight that it is more grievous, and any parent knows this, it's more grievous when your people or your children choose not to delight in you, 
but to delight in false gods and wickedness. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But Israel didn't desire God. They desired another lover. And God found his people like grapes in the wilderness. But in verse 2, or sorry, verse, uh, it's not verse 2, it's verse uh, 11 here. It said, or verse 10, it says that they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Israel turned themselves to the worship of Baal. And the reference here is Baal Peor. And that's actually a, a reminder to Israel of their very first encounter with Baal. It happened at this place called Peor before they ever entered the promised land, hundreds of years before They were in the land and they were being faithful to God. And then we read in Numbers chapter 25 that this is what happened at Peor. Verse 1 of Numbers 25. While Israel was living in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These daughters of Moab invited the people to sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. This was a great sin in their history. And God, even though he delighted in them, they turned themselves over into sexual idolatry. While at first they were delightful grapes, they they turned into this rotten vine. And all these years later, after the time of Moses, the time of Joshua, the time of the judges, and now the end of the time of the kings, they are still delighting in Baal. They still love him. Or as Katy Perry might say in our culture, they kissed a girl and they liked it. Right? They, they, they chose another god. So what happened to them because of their idolatry? Well, Hosea writes, they became detestable like the thing they loved. So listen to this. They began to resemble what they revered. That's our first observation about idolatry. We resemble what we revere. Another way to say it is we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Israel became detestable like the thing they loved. They became what they worshipped. This is really important for us to think about because it is no less true for us today. The thing that we delight in the most, the thing that we desire the most, is what we will become like. The thing that we revere is what we will begin to resemble. I remember my wife and I, uh, we took in a conference a few years ago in Disney World, and so we spent five days at this awesome conference, you know, surrounded by Disney characters and overpriced food, Um, and Southern accents, oh boy, down in Florida, (laughs) like, all these people from all over the South come down, and it's just Southern accents everywhere, and and I remember at the end of the five days, my wife and I, we laid our our head down on our pillow in our hotel, and... um, at the exact same moment, we, we both kind of were just sitting there quiet and praying, and literally our inner prayer voice was a southerner. It was like, we were like, dear Lord, thank you for this week. 
Thank you for all the things you've done, God. Like, we, we, did, we just started to like take on the characteristics of the people that were around us, right? And the things that we were focusing on. And you know, in the same way, whatever is occupying our hearts and our minds in a worshipful sense, that's what we will begin to resemble spiritually. So what does that look like? I mean, if you love money, do you turn into someone green and wrinkly? If you love gold, you become cold and hard. Or if you love, you know, strawberry milkshakes, you become light and frothy. Is that, is that, I mean, is that the idea? Like, it's just like very literal? No, no. Um, the idea behind idolatry is that idolatry is the worship of what is false. There's only one God that we're made to, made to worship. So anything else that we worship that is not God, that is idolatry. Idolatry is when we give something that is not God ultimate significance and ultimate place in our hearts. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And when this distorted, perverted, twisted, unnatural worship happens, it results in a distorted, unnatural, twisted life. And this may have endless manifestations. It may look very different for each person, but it will always end up looking like the opposite of God. It will always end up looking like the opposite of what is pure and holy, of what is innocent or truthful or good or faithful. Doug Wilson, a pastor in Idaho, said, what you behold as an object of your worship is what you become like. We're all worshipers, right? It's what you become like. And what you're becoming like is revealing over time the true object of your worship. So what are you becoming like this morning? A person might come to church Sunday after Sunday, raise their hands to God, be, you know, as the years go by, they're not resembling God, but maybe they're resembling the countenance of a cold-blooded lizard. You know, they're snapping at everybody all the time. And, well, that might tell you something. Maybe this person has a closet full of idols at home that they're really worshiping. See, the true object of your worship will show up in your life and in mine. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he tells the story of a woman named Anna. He says, who desperately wanted to have children. It's a good desire. She eventually married, contrary to the experience, expectations of her doctors was able to bear two healthy children despite her age but her dreams did not come true her overpowering drive to give her children a perfect life made it impossible for her to actually enjoy them her overprotectiveness her fears her anxieties and her need to control every detail of her children's lives made the family miserable See, Anna became something ugly because her ultimate God in life was not God, but her children. You know, I know what you're thinking, like, jeepers, Chris. Like, doesn't God want us to enjoy anything? I mean, is God like this kind of crotchety parent that is just like, put that down and stop doing that. And, you know, that's all that God is. You can't enjoy anything in life. No, that's not God. God, God made this world. He, he made all these good things. He made your children cute, okay? He knows they're cute. And he made a zillion other things 
wonderful for us to enjoy and to bless us with. See, it's not the stuff outside of us that is the problem. It's what our hearts do with that stuff. Ed Stetzer in Christianity Today, the October 2014 issue, he he asked a question. He said, is it that a 12-inch tall piece of wood or bronze can do something bad to us? Or is it that we do something awful to ourselves when we place adoration and attention that should go to God in other things? I think that's exactly right. See, we should enjoy God's good gifts and thank him for it. I'll have you know after this service, I'm going to go home and enjoy an ice-cold root beer to the glory of God. And I'll thank him for it. But something sinister happens when we begin to worship something. It's occupying our thoughts all the time and, and we're serving that God and something begins to take place inside and it turns us into this ugly, detestable thing. Guys, if you're looking at pornography... It will affect your life. It will turn you into something. It will affect your family. You won't escape it. But here's the good news. By turning from your idols, by trusting in Christ, you become more like him over time. He will make you more into his image when we worship and serve him. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. We're being transformed. If you know Jesus today, you're being transformed over time, in a process kind of way, into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. That's the promise if you're in Christ. It's like the stock market a little bit, right? You know, when you look at the stock market for a day, you know, it's just kind of going up and down really quick. And you're like, gee, like, this doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And then sometimes you look at a day in your life and you're like, really? Like, is he really making me more like Jesus? Like, I I don't always feel it. But if you look over time at the stock market, you know, it's going up slowly. It has fits and starts and there's seasons, but you're growing to be more like him. You're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That's what it's like over time. What does what your life look like? Are you looking more like him? Or are you looking more like some other God you might be worshiping? So if you're a Christian today, if you've had your heart changed, what follows should be a life that is gradually resembling the object of your worship. Instead of the, the stinky grapes of idolatry, you start to resemble the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy in your character, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you look like that? What are you becoming like? Are you becoming more like Christ or the world around you? So there's our first portrait. Now I just want to pause for a sec and explain verses 11 to 17 because they seem quite harsh, and they are. But I want to show you a little mercy in this. Um, In verse 14, Hosea prays this prayer. He says, give them, O Lord. And so Hosea is praying for the nation Israel, and then he just stops. He doesn't know what to say. He says, what will you give? I I don't know what to pray for these people anymore. 
Like they have shown over and over again that they do not delight in God. So what does he pray? He says, give them a miscarrying womb. In other words, Lord, spare the next generation of your judgment. Because judgment's coming. He's asking for God's actual mercy on the next generation. That they would not be born to face that judgment. So this is a harsh text for the nation. But it's a blessing for those children that Hosea is praying would be spared. Because they will be brought into the presence of God. So there's mercy in this. And I also want you to know here today, like, if you've ever had a miscarriage or you've been barren and, and couldn't have children for a time, God knows your pain. And there are many other texts we could go to that would indicate that, you know what, God, sometimes, sometimes this stuff happens not as an act of judgment, but as an act of, of, of testing and of, of, of showing you something about himself. So I don't want you to assume right away, if you've had a miscarriage, if you've been barren, that it's God's judgment on you. In fact, if you're a believer here today, far from it. I want you to know that. As we look at these texts, we've got to look at the context. We've got to look at what's going on. And it's this nation, Israel, and it's a specific time, and we have to understand that as we read these passages. So let's move on to the next portrait here. It happens in chapter 10, verse 1. And here's another portrait of Israel. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So in this second portrait, Israel is depicted as a luxuriant vine. The word luxuriant, though, however, is, is a little funny. It's translated many different ways. Uh, some translations have it a spreading vine or, or even a destructive vine. So the picture here is not a good picture. Portrait number two is not a good portrait. It's this kind of sick, diseased vine that's spreading and, and wreaking havoc everywhere it goes. That's now what Israel is. They were this grapes in the wilderness, but this is what they are now. I used to have a vine in my yard, and it was like a raccoon, right? It would just get into everything. It would just like take over with its plant tentacles, you know, and, and you have to pull it out. You're pulling it up. What? There's vines over there, and you're pulling it up everywhere. And that's, that's the image. It's spreading, and as it spreads, as Israel prospers, as they increase, they just become more idolatrous. As they prosper financially, as, God, as there's blessings in their land, they just use that to fuel their idols. This is our second observation about idolatry. It's the more that we increase, the more we idolize, often. It's not always the case. But in, idol in an idolatry sense, the more we increase, the more we idolize. This is very true for us today. You know, often the more we prosper as people, the more money we get or status or possessions we gather, instead of thanking God for it and using it, we often use it for idolatry or just forgetting him. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, God warned the nation of Israel about this. He said this, 
Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, he said, Moses said, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God says it's going to be dangerous. You're going to want to forget God in your prosperity. So don't do it. Use it. God's still going to bless you, but use it to fuel your worship of him. I remember talking to a local pastor who was from uh, Zambia. We met at a ministerial lunch and... um, I asked him a question. I said, what do you find different about ministering here in Canada versus back home? And his answer was immediate. People here don't need God. Back home they do. They know. They know they need God. But in the land of prosperity, we often forget God. We don't need him. We have our idols. See, this is our culture, right? Like, I mean, we're not unlike Old Testament Israel. We are prosperous and we are pluralistic in, our, in North America today, right? I mean, like if your idol is football, I mean, it, you know, in our culture, you can't just love, you know, playing a game of football. Like, we build these massive stadiums and the Super Bowl, you know, halftime show is like nine hours long, right? And it's like... And it, yeah, thanks, Isaac. You know, and it's just, it's just, and it's just getting wilder and just like fatter and sexier, and that is our culture. We don't just love our idols here; we feed our idols. We make them fatter and bigger, and it's not enough to just have one. You have to have lots. We're pluralistic, right? Like we have to have all kinds of different gods that we go to. I mean, that is the culture that we live in today. And so we need to be careful and guard our hearts from taking our prosperity, the things that God blesses us with, and using it to fuel idolatry. Instead, using it for his kingdom. Using it as an act of worship to him. Let's look at the last part of our text, make our last observation. Verse 3 of chapter 10. For now they will say, we have no king. We do not fear the Lord. And a king, what can he do for us? I mean, it's not just unbelievable. Like years ago, they begged God for a king. And now they're going, oh, we don't need a king. Like We're good. I mean, they're... They're happy in their prosperity and their idolatry. They're happy. Hosea says they utter mere words. They don't know what they're talking about. They, with empty oaths, they make covenants, promises. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. 
The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters, the high places of Avon. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills fall on us. Notice in this passage that Israel's upset about something, but it's not that God has departed from them. It says earlier in chapter 9 that God was, Ephraim's glory, that's God, was going to fly away from them like a bird. He's going to fly away from them and depart from them. And then that's when all this judgment's going to happen. Because isn't, I mean, isn't that what hell is? Being outside the presence of God? So when he departs, this bad stuff's going to happen. But they're not going to be upset about that. They're going to be upset about their calf. They're going to lose their idol, their calf. So here's our our third observation about idolatry. We weep for what we worship. They're going to be devastated when their calf is taken away from them. Any parent in the room knows that toys are great for kids until they're not. Um, Until that little heart attaches an ultimate significance to that toy. And then when you take that toy away, it's not a toy anymore. (laughs) It's an idol and temper tantrum, anarchy, volcanic explosion. And you know, it might be cute in a three-year-old, but as we get older, it becomes much less cute We get violently angry, despairing if that God is taken away. And that's Israel. They're despairing about their calf being taken away. See, whatever we despair over reveals who our true God is. Jesus has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. But false gods will be taken away. And those who worship them will despair. Tim Keller writes in his book again, Counterfeit Gods, he says, there is a big difference between sorrow and despair. Despair is unbearable sorrow. In most cases, the difference between the two is idolatry. Despair is no hope, right? Sorrow makes sense. We as Christians, we will be sorrowful. We will be at times in life. And and that's okay. We should be. When a loved one dies, we should be sorrowful. But despairing is something else. I remember watching a Hall of Fame uh, speech by Michael Jordan and um, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. I mean, undoubtedly, probably the greatest basketball player who ever played the game. And, you know, his speech was really something because he was very sad. (laughs) You know, like... It was very final in some ways for him. Like all he talked about in his speech was his, his sort of former glory. And, and you know, I've, I've heard reports that today he's, he's not a very happy guy because he built, and he was unapologetically built his life around the game of basketball. This is God. And when that thing is taken away and you get older and you can't play the game anymore, well, and what's, what's the point of life? And you just left scraping back for your former glory. 
Contrast that with David Robinson. David Robinson is a, a believer in Jesus. He was an all-star center. They call him the Admiral. Um, he had an excellent NBA career, and he was also inducted into the Hall of Fame, and his speech was very different. He was happy. Because he knew that, he said in his speech that he thanked his, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and said, you know, basketball, I'm just thankful that God gave me the chance to play basketball and to do this. But you could just tell he actually enjoyed it because it wasn't his God. His God was Jesus, and this basketball thing had its place under that. See, when you and I lose something that's important to us, there may be great sorrow, but when we lose something ultimate, there's despair. So what would be the thing that if taken away from you today, you would think there's no point in living anymore? Would we be more upset if God were to leave us or one of our idols? Yet the good news of the gospel is that whenever anyone turns to the true God, the triune God of the Bible, then the greatest thing in your life will never be taken away. If your greatest thing is God, he'll never be taken away from you. The good news is that Jesus Christ died for idolaters like us. And he is in the business of making us who know him more like him. Let me leave you with this. If you're, if you're a Christian here today, I want to encourage you. You're not on shaky ground this morning. You know, the Bible says, it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, this is how it explains our new birth in Christ. It says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So look, if you're a Christian here today, you do love Jesus. If you really love Jesus, God sees that. I mean, you have turned away from the idols, right? I mean, you have a new life in Christ. You are being transformed into him. Yet nevertheless, John says to believers at the end of his letter in 1 John 5.21, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. See, we're still tempted to leave the new God, that, you know, the true God, we're still tempted. We have to be on guard against idols that pull at us. They're, they're like pop-up idols, right? They pop up, and we have, to, we have to do war against them. But we don't do that by just saying, go away. We do that by stoking the fire of affection for Christ. If if he is your ultimate love, then the other stuff's going to find its place. So focus on him and remember that he delights in you. Just think about that. He delights in you. And he wants you to delight yourself in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is um, cutting. It is convicting, Lord, to think through these things. Uh, God, reveal our idols to us, Lord, that we may confess them to you. And we do that even now, God. We confess our idolatry at times, Lord, and the idols even in our hearts. God, we pray 
that you would give us power this week, Lord, to walk focused on you, worshiping you, serving you, not just here on Sunday, God, but all through the week in our jobs, in our homes. Lord, you would be the center. Lord, help us to live for you and to keep guard of the idols that come to steal away our affections for you. God, thank you for your many blessings. May we use them for your kingdom, Lord, and for your glory and to advance your name in the world and not to fuel our idols. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for meeting with us. We pray you would go, your grace would go with us now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.